This is Love Jones, producer of the world-famous Confessional. This year, Contessa de la Luna brings you a real, bona fide, Wild West jamboree and variety show. We've got live performances by Contessa de la Luna and Courtney Vondrell from Three Lake Torso, plus audience lasso contests, sock puppet theater, surprise fun box drawing, many other prizes. We've got performances by the Sea Charms and a selfie booth with Contessa de la Luna. We've got plenty of surprises and fun in store, so mark your calendars Thursday, February 9th, 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater. All proceeds benefit KBOO, your community radio station. Tickets are available now online at contessawestern.brownpapertickets.com or at the door the night of the event. Get your hat, get your spurs, and come on down Thursday, February 9th at the Clinton Street Theater starting at 7 p.m. Contessa de la Luna's Wild West Jamboree, an old-time variety show. KBOO at the Clinton is our monthly film series at the Clinton Street Theater. The film this month, The Brainwashing of My Dad, will play Saturday, February 11th at 7.30pm. In The Brainwashing of My Dad, Jen Senko tries to understand the transformation of her father from a non-political, lifelong Democrat to an angry right-wing fanatic, and asks questions about who owns the airwaves and what responsibility the government has to keep the airwaves truly fair, accurate, and accountable to the truth. Filmmaker will be present at the screening. Again, that's The Brainwashing of My Dad, Saturday, February 11th at 7.30 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater, 2522 Southeast Clinton Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. This is Judy Berry from Earth First, and when I'm in Portland, I listen to non-commercial community radio, KBOO. Portland, no compromise in defense of the truth. This is Poetic License, and I am your host, Taria Autry, and this episode features the amazing Christopher Everett, the filmmaker responsible and behind the incredible documentary, Wilmington on Fire. As I roam to my home, I just gotta get I'm around to my home, even if I am alone, man, I gotta get there tonight. Cause my everything's on fire, everything. I know it's hard to struggle the way that they telling you to keep peace, but they giving y'all niggas gas. They hanging all on my city, hanging all on my city. They got me, they come and get it, they rolling with they committee, yeah, uh. They really tryna get far, might label me as black like whistle tip cigars. They try to tell me down to then just take a quick pause. But I'm riding on my road and me hit the quick nars. Fighting like a Spartan, finish what I'm starting. First Sean Bell, then Trey Martin, then this hell. When will it finish? Everybody know that history might just come back to finish yourself. I don't know what you talking about Sometimes I just gotta live it all my life without a doubt And everybody know what everybody talking about Because life is just smoke a minute I cough it out uh, I'm around to my home even if I am alone And I gotta get there tonight Cause my everything's on fire Yeah. 
That was a clip from the song Fire by Don Darko, which is one of the many incredible pieces featured on the soundtrack for the movie Wilmington on Fire. First and foremost, I want to just thank you um, so much, Christopher, for taking some time to sit down with me and chat with me. Uh, I know you got a lot going on right now, and one of the things that you have going on is this incredible film, Wilmington on Fire. Tell me a little about the inspiration for the film and how you got involved in this project. Well, I guess the uh, how I got involved, I'll start with that first, how I got involved with the project, I would say was when I was living in Atlanta, Georgia. It was about um, 2010. And... I was on the internet just, you know, surfing, you know, surfing the net on Google and stuff. And, and an article popped up about um, John Singleton's Rosewood, his movie that he did on the Rosewood Massacre. And then they talked about other race massacres that have happened. Um, I think the Tulsa riots, um, the Red Summer of 1919, and, and, and countless of others um, that have happened across America. And they also mentioned what happened in Wilmington, the Wilmington uh, Massacre of 1898. And, you know, being from North Carolina, you know, that kind of caught my attention. And I was like, wow, you know, I never heard about this before. And so that just kind of made me um, just want to dig more, you know, and find out more about it. So I saw that they actually did a, an official race riot um, massacre report um, that the state of North Carolina did officially. And they put it out on the Internet for free, 600 pages. So I read the whole thing through and also purchased a couple of books um, from a few experts on the topic. And also, I said, you know what? I wonder if anyone has ever done a film on this. So I kind of researched to see if anyone has, you know, did, did anyone do anything on it? Because if someone did, I was going to say, you know what? No, nah, I don't want to copy them. You know, just let them ride out and I'll do something else. But I saw that no one did anything on it. And I said, you know, I'm going to stop complaining about Hollywood and say, well, you know, somebody needs to do a film on 1898 Massacre. I said, you know what, I'll take the initiative and do it. And that, 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 that's what really motivated and inspired me to just really wanting to tell the story and not wait around for Hollywood to tell the story. And let's be honest, if we wait around for Hollywood to tell a story, the story most likely we'll isn't going to get, get told. Uh, or <laughs> yeah. if it does get told, it's definitely not going to be the way we had hoped that it would exactly. be represented. So, um, you know, thank you for making this film in uh, watching it. I, I was impressed. One, the, the way you weave the story together with the interviews and the documents and um, the people you chose to talk to is really yeah. powerful. And then for me, it was seeing so many of the similarities in regards yeah. to that history and this present tense moment where we are at right now. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. Like how how you feel this history is maybe tying into and connected with things that are going on right now yeah. in our modern times. Well, I know when I first put this thing together, this project, I wanted that exact thing to happen. I wanted it. I wanted the film to not only be, you know, a historical lesson, but I also wanted it. I wanted the lesson to still relate to modern times. Cause see, the thing is the majority of the interviews that I shot in the film, I shot those like in 2012. You know what I'm saying? So all the content you're getting is from the year 2012, you know, but people are seeing it now in like 2016 through 2017. And it's it's crazy how a lot of stuff they're talking about back in 2012 is, is kind of coming to fruition, you know, nowadays. 
You know what I'm saying? So, but I guess, you know, I guess they saw a lot of things, you know, in the, you know, in the future coming. Um, and when I do filmmaking, especially documentaries, that's the type of thing I want to do is not only give you a history lesson and you watch it and say, oh, okay, that happened so long ago. Oh, well, get over it. Let's go on, you know. <laughs> but I really want people, and I think that's why the film kind of reaches across racial lines. Because when we do a screening, you know, you have white, black, old, and young come out. And they all kind of get something out of it. And they all talk about what's going on in politics today. You know, especially in North Carolina. Just way, you know, how they recently did that whole thing. You know, the General Assembly with the incoming governor. Um, a lot of media outlets around the country kept bringing up what happened in 1898. And a lot of them mentioned my film as well. And so even the nation as a whole... Um, saw, I guess, the BS that goes on in North Carolina politics, you know, the, the, the spotlight shined on the state once again. And they all mentioned what happened in 1898, you know. And for those, so this radio show is, um, it airs on the internet, so anyone, anywhere can tune in at any time because, you know, I'll post it to SoundCloud later. But, you know, the, the audience where the station is, it's in Oregon, in Portland, Oregon. So for the folks who are tuning in from wherever, whenever, who aren't really familiar with what was going on is in regards to the government in North Carolina, can you elaborate a little bit more on that, too? Yeah, uh, well, you know, the current situation was, you know, the, uh, <laughs> we elected a new governor. And so the, <laughs> the old governor was on his way out. So he decided him and the rest of, I guess, his supporters, which are in the General Assembly, um, they decided to, you know what, we're going to strip some of the some of the powers of the new incoming governor. You know, so it was just a whole big mess. And really, no one's ever seen anything like this before. And it was a real embarrassment, you know, just for the state of North Carolina. No, we're already embarrassed as a country. You know, we voted for Donald Trump, you know, as a whole, <laughs> you know. So now, you know, we got this second embarrassment, you know, the whole state of North Carolina, you know, doing this. Um, pretty much doing like a, a legislative coup in a way, you know, of stripping this this new governor, his power to really, you know, put this state back on track because McCory has really messed up, our former governor, Pat McCory, he's really messed up the, the state of North Carolina a lot. And I blame the people who really voted for him, just like it's the same people that voted for Trump. You know, they vote for these people, then they get mad when it doesn't work out. You know what I'm saying? Like, why did you vote for them in the first place? And a lot of times these guys tell you what they're going to do. Yeah. And then you get mad when they do it. Right. Like, well, <laughs> you know I just saying? thought he was saying that. I didn't think he really meant it. Yeah. Like, oh, I just thought he was just talking about Negroes. You right. Know not, not me, too. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I thought he was just talking about illegal immigrants and, and, and you know, and black people and right. stuff like that. I didn't know he was talking about me as well. Yeah. So, those other people. Not not as hard working class white people. And, you know, I think that was exactly. something that was really powerful. Well, you know, throughout our history and when you, you know, we talk about why we need to not keep history in the past, but be aware of it is because the repetition and the cycles mm -hmm. of it are so out of control. So in watching your movie and before I met you, uh, I had not heard about this history of Wilmington and in watching it. I found the connections to so many other things, right? So, like you were saying, here 
you, you talk about it in the movie and some of the guest speakers in the movie talk about yeah. how, you know, white members of Wilmington, you know, yeah. they bought into it, hook, line, and sinker. Like, yeah, yeah. because, you know, we're, we're tired of them having stuff. We want more stuff. Mm-hmm. And how it was such a ploy because those in power really just used them as fodder to make it happen. And yeah. it wasn't that they were really looking out for everybody. They were really yeah. looking out for themselves. And so yeah. let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, that historical setup and the yeah. way that that influences, you know, white working class folks. Yeah. Well, I know in Wilmington uh, in particular, um, what they, they really used a heavy propaganda campaign um, to really convince people that this was for the best interest of the white race um, in the state of North Carolina as a whole to do this massacre. And the, the, the white supremacy propaganda campaign lasted really for about a couple of years, um, from like 96 to about 98 when they had the, the elections. Um, it was just a straight out assault on just the image and character of African-Americans. Um, you know, the major media outlets at that time were newspapers. And all your major newspaper owners throughout the state of North Carolina, one was the, the Raleigh News and Observer. That was the main one. Um, its owner and founder, Josephus Daniels, he was one of the big um, pushers of this whole propaganda campaign. And then other major newspapers who were also, you know, white supremacists, they followed suit. So it was a statewide propaganda campaign, and they made Wilmington the focus. Because back then, Charlotte, Raleigh, they weren't cities. Wilmington was North Carolina's biggest city back then. And so they had to use Wilmington as an example and make it pretty much the, the symbol of, you know, white supremacy, you know, overcoming, the, I guess, the Negro problem. That's what they would say mm-hmm. of, you know, black people getting in political power, they're owning businesses, you know, so they would just make up any type of story that they wanted to. They would say, you know, black people are running amok in Wilmington. You know, they're committing all these crimes. The political government is corrupt. You know, we got to put a stop to it and all this and that. But you got to realize this as well. A lot of white people won't admit this. But back then, when you look at the records, a lot of white folks were illiterate. You know, a lot of them couldn't read. This is before that mass um, push for public education was before that was really in place fully. So you had a lot of whites that were illiterate. And the, the major newspaper owners knew that. So they used that. They used their ignorance to their advantage, just like they do now. <laughs> you know, the way they use their ignorance to the to their advantage to push their agenda, even though they can care less about these people. Right. And then when you look at it, and so when they did the massacre, people were, I guess, desensitized to what was going on. And it also influenced a lot of black people because you have a lot of black people. When you look at some of the old newspaper articles and clippings, you had some black people blaming black people in Wilmington for the massacre, saying that, well, they shouldn't have tried to get all this political power and, and do all this stuff and this and that. I'm like, wow, mm-hmm. man, you had people being Uncle Tom's, you know, <laughs> even even then, you know, so it's amazing how even the propaganda worked on our people back then as well. Yeah. And that's why a lot of people just didn't really, I guess, care to do anything about it because the, the propaganda campaign was effective. And, you know, you probably saw what Umar, yeah. Umar Johnston broke it down you know, in like a three-minute segment, the whole thing, and it's still how it relates today, you know what I'm saying? But <clears throat> I know in part two, we're going to film Wilmington on Fire too. we we're going to go more in depth with that, like what happened 
in North Carolina after this white supremacy uh, movement. And then, like you said, how a lot of poor whites and working class whites go against their own interests. Mm -hmm. So when they did the massacre, it instituted, you know, it instituted Jim Crow segregation throughout North Carolina. But a lot of poor white people didn't realize that they, their voting rights got kind of stripped, too. Because when you look at a lot of the records, you know, a lot of those guys like Governor Acock, who became governor in 1900 because of this white supremacy movement. Um, he also a lot of them also stated that, you know, um, only rich men who pay property taxes should be able to vote. You know, so they ain't really they really didn't even want poor whites to even vote either. You know, but they hyped up the poor white person to say that the reason why you're poor and you can't get a job is because these Negroes over here got all the jobs and everything. Mm -hmm. So you need to do this, you know, you need to fix this Negro problem, you know. So when they do that, <laughs> they still don't get anything either out of the deal, right. you know. So that's what I'm saying. Racism really doesn't benefit anyone but just, just I guess, this elite group of white folks who, right. you know, who own and control everything. It's the same way it was how it was back then. It's the same way now. Right. And in, you know, in slavery, the same thing, you know, you, you yeah. get everyone invested into the system yeah. that benefits wealthy landowners at mm -hmm. the expense of everybody. And mm -hmm. then, you know, it always comes to my mind, you know, that famous quote about, you know, if they come for me at night, they'll come for you in the morning. And this idea exactly. that like, okay, well, we can say, well, we don't want the immigrants here. Well, we don't want this person here or that group of people here as yeah. if, you know, we can other people and it not come back you know, to us. And that's yeah. something that I think has been really And it's happened. Prominent. And it's ha yeah. happened. Yeah. I, I just saw something recently. It was some some family. I forgot what country they were from originally. But they were like big Trump supporters. Big Trump supporters. So now I think they're, some of their family members just got deported. So now so now they want somebody to march for them and pray for them. Like, nah. Nah, he told you what he was going to do. He did. You thought he was just going to just target like Muslims and because see, these are cold words, and I forgot that guy's name. He actually, it was a. I think like they recorded him. I think they secretly recorded. He did. He used to do consulting for the Republican Party. I think like seventies and eighties, and they recorded him about speaking to like these conserv the conservative party Republicans and stuff like that on how to talk to your base of voters. Mm -hmm. You know, because you know back then, you know Dixiecrats and all those conservatives, they can just come out to say the n-word whenever and you know they could just flat out say you know you know in this in that yeah. but after the civil rights movement they couldn't do that no more so he was explaining that saying that you can't say the n-word no more you have to use code words like states rights you know tough on crime and those type of things you see what i'm saying mm -hmm. so see see white folks they know the code words yeah. but our people don't really understand the code words fully right. it's it's out there you know the strategies but that's what they use. They use they use code words in this election, For you know, sure. in this election Absolutely. about legal, you know, legal immigrants and Muslims and all that, you know. So they even tied in Black Lives Matter with um, with 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 Islamic terrorists. Yeah. You know, it's, it's crazy how they even tied that in together. You see what I'm saying? So these are they've used code words back then. They're still doing it today. Um, I think that's why films like Wilmington on Fire are very important. You know, we got to be educated on this thing. We have been the whites upset. And we're on fire, on fire, on fire, as in ready aim fire. You come up, we dumb up. From Mansa, Musa to Massa, Yusa. Assertion of your humanity means exertion of your calamity. 
Your inability to stop us makes it your fault. Living while black is crime enough, but leading the vainglorious G-O-V-T makes the whites of our eyes notoriously B-I-G. And you got one more chance to resign. It's in our scarcity design. Red blood said, led by the bluest eyes. You were ready to die when you were ready to vote. And eyes not European eyes. Why? And you can't be why unless you are against the black opposition. No mirrors and privilege. Reflection is projection. Thou shalt not kill is a commandment, but I'm a Christian. Let the church say, Amen. A community meeting for the cool to be beating is held at the church where the imperial wizard will be greeting saying, Amen. Don't shoot. Don't shoot. So you see the whites of their eyes or the blacks of their skin. If killing them is wrong, I don't want to be right. But how can I be wrong when the South was right and eyes white? Hey, what's up? This is Christopher Everett, the man behind the award-winning documentary, Wilmington on Fire. And you're listening to KBOO Portland. And I'm talking with Taria. The poem you were just listening to was called White Supremacy. That is also off the soundtrack of Wilmington on Fire. The documentary we are talking about today, and it was performed by Omai Fox, poet, and it featured Kaya Woods. The backlash from having had a black president for the yeah. first time for two terms, that yeah. right away they were like, what I know for sure is I don't want any more of that regardless. Yeah. And I definitely don't want to go to the other end and have yeah. a woman as a president. But what yeah. I really would feel comfortable with is if we could get back to our white male leadership. Oh, and yeah. It wasn't like um, President Obama was like, okay, reparations for all black people. Yeah, exactly. It was against, here's your he mansion. was against reparations. Yeah. yeah. But see, that's the thing, though. It's like, and see, they wanted, they not only wanted to get, get back to good old, I guess, white men um leadership because see if that was the case they would have voted for Ber they would have got bernie in there That's so they true. want they wanted they, they wanted white conservative yes you know what i'm saying leadership you know what i'm saying because you had plenty of white men that could have ran you know with yeah. the democrats it's hell joe biden should have ran you know for probably president yeah you know but they wanted to get it back to good old that that conservative you know white men you know type that type of mentality mm -hmm. that's what they really wanted yeah and it's it's been hell ever since. Really, just a couple of weeks. He's I already know. messed up. <laughs> it's going to be a long four years. It's going to it be is. a very long four years. It really is. And then you know, you were mentioning about how people have been kind of surprised. Like, oh wait, I didn't think he was going to deport mm -hmm. my family. And mm -hmm. then, you know, even you know, we talk about the code words with the whole yeah. Obamacare being. Yep. how they renamed the Affordable yeah. Care Act. Because yeah. if you say yeah. the Affordable Care Act, it's kind of hard to be like, I hate affordable health care. But it's yep. really easy for people to be like, well, I don't like that Obama guy, so anything with see, his uh, Yeah, see, Obamacare, see, they tagged it. See, that's mm -hmm. the code word for pretty much like entitlements, and black people might get something out of the deal. It, how, we you know, know it, it sounds like, because see, they made it sound like a welfare-ish, you know, mm -hmm. type of thing, you know what I'm saying? You know, so... They think they slick, man. You yeah. know, they really tagged that whole and tarnished the whole thing of naming something, you know, Obamacare yeah. to make it seem like you're getting some type of handout. Right. In regards to black people are getting some 
It's right. us that's getting something out the deal. Right. And anytime we're attached to something, you know, that's just a negative. Right. You know we got to cut welfare because, you know, there's those black women out there <laughs> having extra yep. kids so that they can get $25 more a month or whatever. Exactly. And then it's like, if they said, we don't want poor white women and their children to eat, so we're going to cut mm. welfare. It would be a whole different reaction because that's the reality exactly. of the majority of people who benefit. Because I mean, exactly. we're only thirteen percent of the population, so anything exactly. that's benefiting us is clearly benefiting yeah. more working class and poor white people yeah. than it is. Yeah, because see, see, that's the thing that this country don't really. Uh, and see, that's how this is how Trump got elected as well. The majority of America is poor rural, you know, poor rural white areas, yeah. like where I'm from. Um, you know, like Laurenburg is. This place, I think we have like the second highest unemployment rate in 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 the state, you know. Wow. Like a lot of like a lot of times these poor areas, these rural areas, one or two factories leave. It's a wrap, and that's what happened. Like I think like in middle school, we haven't really recovered since. Since I've you know, I think middle school was probably like the last you know bit of you know jobs we had around here. Everything's gone, and that's the majority of America. All these right. rural areas, you know, have really been abandoned because a lot of times. You know, politicians on the state and federal level, they focus on big cities, mm-hmm. you know, saying the bigger cities and, you know, they're more attractive to business development. They coming into a rural area and the rural areas always get neglected and people like Trump see that as an opportunity. You know, he's a he's a good, you know, I guess businessman in regards to that. He knows how to manipulate, yeah, you know, a situation. And that's what he did. He saw that majority of rural America they really can't stand the government because the government has neglected them. It has, absolutely. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. But this dude ain't going to do nothing for him either. So it's like, you know, but they say, you know what, you know, he seems like he's against the system. And, you know, he's also, you know, for white supremacy. So, oh, well, if I don't get nothing out of the deal, so what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that's a, that's how it, that's how it seems. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how it seems. But I think... um I think the the Democrats, or I guess the liberal side of it, politics, they really need to re re um, focus. I think they really need to pay more attention to these rural areas because yeah. these places are hurting, sure. and this is a result. And this is why we're in this situation now because of the neglect, the years of neglect, you know, on these rural areas.
That was another track off the Wilmington on Fire soundtrack. It's called Choose Me by James Diallo featuring Shannon Greer. It's actually a bonus track. You can see, I guess, just the ramifications of the massacre, you know, over 100 years later. Um, Because, like, prior to the massacre, you know, Wilmington was a majority black city. Mm. You know, now that after the massacre, the, the population never even got back to that level. Um, I think whites are like 75% now, blacks about 20%. And also it stunted the growth of the city as well. You know, Wilmington is not the largest city in North Carolina anymore. It has been the largest city in North Carolina in over 100 years. You know, Charlotte and Durham, you know, those places, you know, expanded and grown, but Wilmington never did. You know, they just, it's only the, the very selected few. And when you look at the very selected wealthy people in Wilmington, they're direct descendants of the people who actually did the massacre. Mm. They're like the richest people in Wilmington and really some of the richest people across the state of North Carolina, wow. you know, period. So you see, you know, you see what's the, those effects mm-hmm. of the massacre over a hundred years later in Wilmington. Cause it would make sense that Wilmington should be, it should, it should be the biggest city because of its location. Yeah. It's on yeah. the ocean. It's on ports. And yeah. you know, when you look at the West coast, the cities yeah. that are, Yep. most prominent if they're not on the ocean like seattle yeah. or yeah. san francisco and you know the bay area or mm-hmm. los angeles then mm-hmm. you know like portland is the most major city in oregon and it's not yeah. on the ocean but it's on all the rivers so it's a yeah. port city as well yeah. and so for trade and commerce like wilmington it, it doesn't make sense and plus okay can now i know this isn't political but no. every time I've gone to Raleigh and Durham, which is great, I'm amazing people yeah. there. Uh, yeah. I love going there. But the weather is funky inland in North Carolina. <laughs> yeah, and it, it seems like here on the East Coast, it's like a total different case of weather. So like yeah. given a choice of like personally where I would want to be, like I like being here on the East Coast. And so yeah. it would make sense that like Wilmington all the way up through where I'm at in Jacksonville, like all this would be, you know, the major thriving place that everyone would want to go to yeah. and be. But time and time again, when you look at like, well, where are more of the colleges? Where's yeah. more of the development? Where are yeah. more businesses and things happening? It's, you yeah. know, inland, which, yeah. you know, like you said, it's it's th- this development yeah. that happened after this massacre and how yeah. it stunted the growth and the potential. Yeah. And see, Wilmington produced a lot, of, a lot of excellent, brilliant minds back then and probably would have eventually. I know I heard rumors that they wanted to, start you know some uh, a black college in wilmington back then wow. um, before the massacre yeah it was this was def- that's some of the, the stories i've heard i don't know if it's true or not but you know some of the things i've heard um i know um james dudley you know the guy who used to be the president of north carolina a t okay. um like back in like 1897 to till he died um you know he was from wilmington he actually left wilmington um before the massacre to go be the president of a t um, he's buried in, um, you know, in the movie where the guy was in the cemetery, mm-hmm. Pine Forest Cemetery. That's where pretty much all your prominent African-Americans from back then are buried. And he's buried there as well. Um, he was a big educator in Wilmington. I think he, was, he was born and raised in Wilmington as well. And he got the position at A&T. And that's one of the reasons why he left, I think, like a year prior to the massacre. So he wasn't there during the massacre because he had went on to Greensboro to um, be the president of A&T. So they had... You know, they had people there to, to accomplish this type of stuff. Right. You know what I'm saying? But it, it never, like I said, 
Wilmington never really reached its full potential. Mm -hmm. I think that's the real moral to the story. The city as a whole never really reached its full potential. And also the state of North Carolina never reached its full potential as well because I know a lot of people feel like this is just a story restricted to Wilmington. It's not. You know, the whole state of North Carolina. And also um, what we're going to talk about in part two of the people who left Wilmington. A lot of people went to Jacksonville. A lot of people went to Durham. You know, a lot of people left the state, period. You know, so, you know, people were disband, you know, disband, families separated. And that's why a lot of times, you know, it's hard for people to trace that lineage because people had to move wherever they could. You right. know what I'm saying? And a lot of times people were afraid to even bring up what happened. You know what I'm saying? And um, I know this one guy, we did a screening in Goldsboro last year, this older, older gentleman. He stood up and shared his, his story. He said he grew up in Wilmington and um, I think his grandparents um, went through the massacre. Wow. And he talked about how his parents really told him, you know, they kind of told him some stuff that happened, but constantly told him to never bring it up. Never bring it up. Said, if you ever bring this up, these people will do harm to you. If you get older, you won't get a job. The whole nine. So he just never talked about it. And he said this was like his first time to really talk about it in public. Now after watching the film. Wow. You know what I'm saying? And he really gave, he said, you know, he finally, you know, realized that it was okay to talk about this. You know, so those are the things right there that really touch me and keep me motivated. You know, because it shows that the film is actually, you know, giving people hope, you know, to show that, hey, you can talk about this stuff and we can learn from it. Right. You know, at the same time, we ain't got to be scared no more. Yeah. And let's do something about it. How y'all feel out there? Say, say. Oh, yeah. What it is, right. young blood. Right. Live from the front line. Checking the wrist of the not so rich for the jail time. How much you got, young blood? How much did they deal you after you bleeding for a deal? This is your justice system working efficiently against you. It would be against the rules for you to improve the conditions around you. So don't you dare educate yourself. Fight for your health. Nah, young blood. Your 40 acres in a mule is on a corner and it's a burner. That turner runs through your veins, young blood. But they don't want you exercising your right to bear arms. They would break your arms for reaching for your dreams or justice. These jive turkeys would rather see you hang. I said these jive turkeys would rather see you hang, young blood. And I'm not just talking about the man. I'm talking about the brother man around the corner. These crab, apple crabs in a barrel will point the barrel at your dome. Send you home to your maker. So tell me what it is, young blood. So tell me how it is growing up in America. In these streets, these ghettos, these barrios and trap houses. Houses built on sweat and slave wages. Let me know when you're ready to wage war. And I will arm you with books and bullets. You will choose which gun to use. The steel in your hand or the master plan planted in your brain. Welcome to the true front line, young blood. Can you dig it? Let's handle these issues right on. This is Taria Autry. I am your host here on Poetic License. And you were tuned in to KBOO Portland, www.kboo.fm if you're live streaming it. And we air the show the first Monday of every month at 10 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And thanks again for tuning in. If you want to check out previous episodes of Poetic License, you can visit my website at 
www.turiyaa.com. That's www.turiyaa.com. And now back to my interview with Christopher Everett, the filmmaker behind Wilmington on Fire. Coming back to some stuff we were talking about earlier as far as, you know, opportunities and how they're being diminished for people across the boards, yeah. you know, and the effects that has on communities. I think, you know, this idea of the code words, right? You, you mentioned yeah. tough on crime. Um, yeah. And I recently was watching that documentary 13 by... Um, yeah, Ava DuVernay. Yeah, man, great joint. That, yeah, great. And for me, it's a lot of history that I'm familiar with in that yeah. particular case. But just to see it all put together in a documentary that I think the average person can like be like, oh, wow, if they didn't yeah. know that information. But, you know, yeah. this talk about the impact of prisons. And, you yeah. know, when we talk about tough on crime, what yeah. that means as far as for, you know, people being basically kind of kidnapped from their communities yep. and put into these large warehousing situations where they're yep. working because it's not like they're just sitting around kicking it, watching TV, yeah. contrary to popular belief. You know, it's yeah. like sweatshop labor. And yeah. how that is impacting all workers in the country. Yeah. Because just like factories going overseas, taking yep. business into a prison and incarcerating people in order to have low-paid yep. labor, in order to have fixed yep. low-paid you know, the quality of every worker and the quality you know, continues to destroy like unions and things that you know, yep. Yep. and things that ideally, you know, wages and yep. fair working conditions how that's undermining everything so this tough on crime if people buy into it like you know the same propaganda that was happening in 1898 and just post-slavery in general about black criminality because of course while we were slaves we were all happy docile content and you know singing for the master like you know everything was good and then as soon as abolition comes you know we're scary and frightening and you know brutal and unhappy um so you know it's there's always this propaganda campaign to serve the needs but yeah i think this way that people don't see how this legislation and this real um trend towards locking and incarcerating younger and younger people for longer yeah. and longer periods of time yeah. you know what potential are we losing as a yeah. nation to advance much like yeah. in this case of a massacre and it talks yeah. about all the all, some folks were given a warning, like, hey, yeah. get on this train and get up out of here and don't yeah. come back. And then yeah. other people were killed. So either way, the whole um, organizing potential of the people was disbanded yeah. and dismantled. And how that's you know, very much the case in our modern times with many aspects, but especially with the prison industrial complex, really taking away... That, you know, not just young people, but, you know, people who would be the potential doctors, scientists, educators, wh whatever their calling would be is now stunted. And we all suffer, you know, behind that. And then the average everyday mm -hmm. worker who is like, oh, good, mm -hmm. I'm glad all those evil criminals, which, you know, most of them are nonviolent non drug offenses, you know, yeah. are behind bars and not seeing how in the long game that's money out of their pocket for the taxes exactly. and because now their work is yeah. no longer needed. Yep. You're right. You're right. Yeah. And see, that's the thing. It's just like, you know, and it kind of goes back to slavery. Mm -hmm. um, just with that, um, you know, the majority of, you know, a lot of white people couldn't work because what's the point of hiring you when I got fleet free labor? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Right. You know, so, you know, so, but 
then they make that seem like it's black per- like a black person fault. You know, I'm a slave, I'm captive. I don't have a choice. You know, but then, you know, once you know we were free, we pretty much had all the skills because you know this is before like public education and all that. So a lot of those poor whites really didn't have the skills we had. We had all the skills. We were the best builders, um, construction workers. We knew how to farm the land. We were the best blacksmiths. You know, we just never got paid for it. So once we um, got free and got a little education, you know, it was on. You know, we were able to start our businesses and and really compete, you know, with with white folks. But a lot of times we would get hired sometimes as well. And then that angered white people somewhat. You know what I'm saying? So it's... It's it's weird. It's weird. Just this whole thing, the whole concept of the prison industrial um, system. But it goes back, like you said, to the Thirteenth Amendment. Mm-hmm. You know, they never really. They need to. I think first of all, they need to change that yeah, and remove that little clause out of it. First and foremost, that should have been got. That should have. I guess after the during the Civil Rights Movement, they should have ended that. They should have took that out. You know, because if we're really going to end racism fully, that's one right there. That's one amendment that needs to change. You know, you need to outlaw it, period. But, you know, that really shows you what this country is about at the end of the day. It's consistent. Exactly. Exactly. You know, like, I think people are like, well, and that, I think, was the most difficult thing for me in that whole uh, conversation about making America great again. And it's like, oh, yeah, if you know, it's a cold word. Yeah, we know (laughs) we we know what you mean. Yes, there what there was no great for like the masses. Because a lot of people don't realize that. You know, after slavery, you know, then that's when they had that uptick of locking up black people. Mm-hmm. And see, the thing is, you know, you're a slave and you couldn't get safe. You just couldn't get hired for nothing, period. Because, you know, after slavery, you just were just out there, yeah. you know. And they would just make up different ki- yeah. type of laws. Vagrancy like if you, laws, if you didn't, codes. Yeah, if you didn't have a job or something like that, they could lock you up. Yep. Or it could just be, they can lock you up for anything. If you were congregated, you know? like a few people. Exactly. Yeah. Which ties so, into gang, yeah. like a lot of the gang exactly. coding now, which is basically yep. young people gathering, you yeah. know, because obviously not everyone's gang affiliated. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's like, I think that's why these films are very important, yeah. you know, but, you know, a lot of times, you know, our people, we're worried about the wrong things, that's you know, true. just like, you know, I'm cool with Beyonce, you know, being pregnant and everything, but it's like, come on, we have way more things to worry about right now. Then this lady being pregnant, she's gonna be all right. Yeah, she <laughs> you know seems to she be got doing resources. Okay for she's good. <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, she got resources. She's gonna be all right. You know, this this ain't the time to do that. And see, that's our problem as black people. We play around too much. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yo, this is not the time to be playing around. Mm-hmm. They're not playing around, so we need to be serious. On that day. 
started a race riot fueled by hate. A racial war, coup d'etat, or intimidation. Whatever words you use to describe it, Africans faced government sanctioned genocidal extermination. spoken word piece was called The Cape Fear Massacre, and it was performed by the one and only Sophia Giza off the Wilmington on Fire soundtrack. You're tuned in to KBOO Portland. I am your host, Taria Autry, and we are talking with Christopher Everett, the filmmaker behind Wilmington on Fire. 
You mentioned earlier about kind of some of the, we were talking about the potential and different things that were on the verge of happening. And with, you know, a lot of the folks on the West Coast don't have that same experience of, you know, HBCUs even. Yeah. And that's something that I found, um, you know, I mean, I've always been aware of them. I've, you know, been to a couple and performed or gone to conferences. But, you know, like I was in Atlanta when they have the big homecoming and it's Spelman, Morehouse, Clark, like huge. I mean, just blocks and blocks and like tens of thousands of, of black folks. And, you know, knowing that that's something that is very uniquely, um, on this side of the country, the South and the, yeah. you know, because you got to look at it because see, it, cause, because it's out of slavery. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the majority of black people see back then, like during slavery and right after slavery, really want no black people out there on the West Coast, right. you know, because most, most of your slave um, concentration was, you know, the South mostly, you know, the South and the East Coast. You know, a lot of us started migrating to different areas after that, but the majority of your concentration was in the South, you know, North Carolina, South Carolina. Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, you know, so that's why you kind of see, you know, a lot of that concentration of HBCUs because the majority of them started right after slavery, you know what I'm saying? So a lot of people just didn't move away. They just set up shop, you know, right there in their their towns or cities or whatever state or city that was nearby, you know, so that's why you kind of got that heavy concentration up and down the East Coast, especially in the South, you know, of HBCUs. And it just, you know, it just developed that tradition, you know, of those, you know, things that you probably checked out when you came on this side right. yeah, of the it's, world. <laughs> it's, you know, and, and it's funny to me that, you know, when I, especially, you know, when I moved to um, North Carolina, because like Atlanta, everyone's like, yeah. okay, I get it, Chocolate City, Atlanta. But when I yeah, said yeah. North Carolina, and everyone's like, ooh, North Carolina, you know, because like some of the things you were saying about its reputation in the country. And I was yeah. saying, so, you know, Oregon has a history, too, because, you know, they were like, you yeah. know, y'all can come out here to work, but they didn't expect us to stay. You know, it was like, OK, yeah. now y'all can can leave. And there were all these like laws around basically, you know, don't be caught in certain places after dark. Um, you know, you couldn't own property yeah. um, <clears throat> in some of the cities. It was like if you didn't move and you didn't leave. You could be um, subjected to yeah. a, a public whipping once a year. Yeah, you know, I think you know we need to have like I guess a, a second, you know, renaissance, like a yeah. Harlem renaissance in a way. You know, but in but in in, in pockets. Yeah. You know, what I'm saying you know like how you guys got y'all thing going on in Jacksonville. You know, with Brad and those guys. Yeah, I love them. They're you know, great. y'all got y'all thing going with y'all building there, y'all, y'all community. You know, there needs to be something definitely in Wilmington. You know, Charlotte, just all over. I think we need to have like black collectives of artists, yeah. you know, doing their thing, you know, whether it's film, spoken word, you know, art, you know, the whole nine, writing the whole nine. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I think that's what we really need to do. And we can do it now because especially with social media, and we sure. all can maybe build a network, mm-hmm. you know, a collective where, you know, each year we might meet up for like a, like a black renaissance conference or something. Mm-hmm. You know, we all exchange ideas and, and move, you know, and do things like right. that, you know, to stay connected with everybody. You know, so I think these are the things we're going to have to do, you know, as black people and as black artists as well. I know you said you're working on a Wilmington on Fire Part 2. Um, what other, yeah. Tell us a little bit about other projects you got going. Okay, well, outside of Wilmington on Fire 2, um, we're going to, um, well, I'll explain a little bit of that too. Well, Wilmington on Fire 2 is going to really expand on what we talk about in Part 1. You know, we're going to be filming, you know, in Jacksonville, Goldsboro, Fayetteville. 
Durham, and also in uh, Whitesboro, New Jersey. We want to focus on, it's going to go more into what happened to African Americans after 1898. You know, where did they go? You know, how did their lives change? You know, we're going to focus more on those families who were exiled or just left the city altogether. And also focus on Wilmington today and how the massacre really, really impacted, you know, the, the city of Wilmington plus the state of North Carolina, you know, currently today. Um, so that's, you know, Wilmington on fire too. We'll probably start filming that in the spring. I'm going to start filming some stuff in the spring for that, get that rolling. And we also, uh, purchased my film company is also purchased the rights to a couple of film scripts. Uh, one is like, can't really talk about one of them right okay. now. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Don't you reveal know any saying? of the secrets and things you can't talk about quite yet. <laughs> yeah. We can talk again. Because like some. Cause it's like some BS going on one of the things, but the one I'm going to talk about right now to the other one gets cleared up. The other one I bought a script is called sad songs for the cornerman. And it's a cool script. And I really think it's really fitting for, to what's going on now. And the film is like an ensemble drama and it's going to be about like in the aftermath of the second great depression, which we might currently have under this administration. So it's like, really, it's, it's a glimpse into the future, okay. you know, probably what's to come. But it really takes place in the aftermath um, of the Second Great Depression. And an unemployed man, he's desperate, you know, for money. So he joins this underground boxing club. And he's paid to lose fights, you know, for these big, rich people who gamble on, you know, this illegal underground fighting club. So while he's, you know, going through this whole thing, he really realizes and sees America for what it is. You know, of how the greed and stuff like that has really messed up society as a whole. And that's that's what the film is about. And, and really, I think it's really going to touch a lot of people because of what we you know we're currently seeing. You know what I'm saying? So that's a joint we got in development. And also, my company bought the distribution rights to um, an underground cult film called As an Act of Protest. And it came out in 2001, but it was kind of blackballed um, because of the content. The film is about a young actor who goes through this like the Station of the Cross um, journey after his brother is killed by police officers his brother was walking home from school he was harassed by the cops and they killed him and so he's an actor doing theater with his with his buddy and they think they can use art and theater as a way to maybe cure the world of racism but he feels like it's not good enough and it's not happening fast enough fast enough for him so he decides to take it in his own hands and just do it by any means necessary and which might be you know end up taking someone's life in the process. And when that film dropped, when he came out with the film in New York, I think in 2001, you just had 9-11 had happened. Yeah, so that were kind of, yeah, they weren't ready for it. And then, so he just really just screened it for like the, the next year. And it screened at a lot of top festivals around the country and the world, even overseas. And I know one critic said it was like one of the best black films of 2002 that nobody would probably ever see. Mm. So I've known the guy for a few years. He likes what I've done with Wilmington on Fire. And he said, hey, man, I've gotten, you know, recent, because he's gotten recent interest, I guess, over the past few years about the film because of the uptick of police brutality cases. You know, Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown and others. And a lot of people, you know, are starting to remember his film that came out years ago. So we want to introduce it to a new audience um, because we feel like the time is now that I think the world really needs to see this film. And I think it's a classic film. I think it's up there with um, the spook who sat by the door. Yeah. And I really want to put this thing out here. And, and I'm, I'm honored that he wanted me, you know, to distribute it. You know nice. what I'm saying? I'm very honored. He could have went to anybody 
and got this thing done. So I'm glad that he's entrusting in me because I think he knows I'll do the right thing with it and really get it out there the best way I can. So those are the projects, nice. you know, we got in development. So we're currently like remastering it right now and doing some edits to it. And we're going to probably do like a screening of it probably around May. Okay. And I'm probably going to do it in Wilmington as well. Okay. I'll keep you posted on it when we do it. That sounds good. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Uh, I appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank like you. Like I said, this, this is my first attempt of doing a film like this, you know, a feature film. It's, a lot of people think that film is easy. It's not. It's a no, lot of parts to it. Like the soundtrack stuff, the editing, the everything. It's, it's tough. And I had to pretty much do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. It was tough. It was, it was a tough experience, but I had fun doing it, you know, doing it at the same time, you know. As an artist, I think you have to grow and grow with each project. So I'm just excited to start the next thing I do. Hey, what's up? This is Christopher Everett, the man behind the award-winning documentary, Wilmington on Fire. And you're listening to KBOO Portland. And I'm on Poetic License with the lovely Taria. And you can get more information about Christopher Everett by looking at www.wilmingtononfire.com. And the best way to follow Christopher Everett and get more information is to drop a text to the following number, 910-378-4357. That's 910-378-4357. Shoot a text there and you will get all kinds of updates on upcoming screenings of the film, a free copy of the soundtrack, and more. I'm going to take you out with one more song from the soundtrack called Motherless Child by Travesty featuring Melissa Thomas. What's the missing clue? What's the missing clue? Uh. Uh. Never in a million years. Damn, I shed so many tears Trying hard to take the pain But I know I'll never be the same A thousand thoughts are running through my brain Feeling like a car cause it's driving me insane Can I get a break? What's the missing clue? Looking for my jinkies, where is Scooby-Doo? Lost my Mona Lisa, one of a kind Her love was off the meters, never declined I was her son, so she raised me to shine And she was my moon in the dark, she would guide Right by my side, ready to ride Something like a lion it's heart full of pride, never say die Fight to the end, keep it in check like a punch to the chin God is the child, she would always say And don't be fat and false with these snakes Can't believe you're gone, even though it's true I feel so all alone, my everything was you The reason I'm here is because you gave birth The reason I'm him is because of your worth Priceless, more like irreplaceable The love we had is permanent, would never be erasable I'm missing Till it's six feet deep, buried in a tomb on the stone And the fat lady singing her song And the preacher man, he beating them songs And your favorite uncle squeezing your palm Saying, if you be strong, hold your head up Use a man now, so you gotta be grown On that teaching that tone, got your inner fly zone Where nobody can touch it, and them chickens can't pluck it Cable of the Clinton is our monthly film series at the Clinton Street Theater The film this month, The Brainwashing of My Dad Will play Saturday, February 11th at 7.30pm 
In the brainwashing of my dad, Jen Senko tries to understand the transformation of her father from a non-political, lifelong Democrat to an angry right-wing fanatic, and asks questions about who owns the airwaves and what responsibility the government has to keep the airwaves truly fair, accurate, and accountable to the truth. Filmmaker will be present at the screening. Again, that's The Brainwashing of My Dad, Saturday, February 11th at 7.30pm at the Clinton Street Theatre, 2522 Southeast Clinton Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. This is Andrei Kodrescu. A warning to all listeners. The following program may contain profanity. Listener discretion is advised. <laughs> 